Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Stanley Kurtz. He is Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He has a doctorate in anthropology from Harvard, and he's the author of many books, many articles, uh, including Spreading the Wealth, How Obama is Robbing the Suburbs to Pay for the Cities from a couple of years ago. He's a frequent and longtime contributor to National Review. He just authored an important report for the National Association of Scholars on Western Civilization and Higher Education in America, which we will get to shortly. But first, uh, Stanley, welcome. And uh, I noticed you have an essay at National Review Online. It went up a few days ago from, from the time we're recording. That, I think, was a significant statement about the conservative movement over the years. Let's start with, with that. Uh, so, welcome, Stanley. Mark, thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, the title of the essay is called, is Two Secularizations and the Fate of Conservatism. Uh, I thought there was only one secularization, Stanley. There are two. <laughs> what are those two? Well, the idea of two secularizations first includes the obvious secularization, that we're losing faith in traditional religion. And uh, in the article, I talk about William F. Buckley Jr.'s God and Man at Yale. And I note that the conservative movement, in a sense, was created by that book, which means it was created by a dispute over ultimate questions, like the existence of God, in the halls of the academy. Literally, the conservative movement came out of a battle against secularization as it manifested itself in the academy. So that's the first secularization and the obvious one. And, and I, wa I want to say you, you, you begin with that point and you say we, we had that what uh, 70 years ago now. And you say this pattern continues to hold that the campus now is almost what ground zero and we don't even really know it sometimes. And that, that's, that, that jumps ahead to your report. We'll get to that in a moment. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. So the two, two secularizations, that was one. But that, that's it, Mark. The idea is, my argument is that just as conservatism as a political movement actually was founded as a result of a dispute over secularization in the traditional sense in higher education, so too today conservatism is actual, actually a response to secularization, not just the first secularization, the reduced belief in traditional religion, but a second secularization. And by that, I mean a declining belief 
in what we think of as high culture, in the sorts of things that used to be taught in the academy, like, say, required courses in Western civilization, humanities courses in the great books, literature, art, music, all of that has come under a kind of skepticism, a loss of faith, which is parallel in many ways, and in some sense maybe even a function of the first secularization, the declining belief in God. Mm -hmm. And the way I argue in the piece we might want to think about the conservative movement today is that it is an alliance of opponents to the first and the second secularization. It's certainly possible to be opposed to both of those secularizations, to be opposed to the declining belief in traditional religion and declining belief in Western civilization and the great classics of the humanities. Some people are not religious anymore, but they're conservative because they're fighting against the second secularization. Mm -hmm. So I think that alliance in many ways is what the conservative movement is all about. Now, what does that tell us? Well, the first thing it tells us is that something about political conservatism is a reaction to what's happening in the culture. And, and that brings us down to the present day and to President Trump, because what I argue in the piece is that the, uh, the never-Trumpers, the conservative opponents of Trump, keep saying, don't just be reactive, focus on positive principles. President Trump doesn't even know much about traditional conservative principle. He's imperfect in his personal life. But what I argue in the piece is that, sure, conservatives in their personal lives and in their deepest beliefs care about those positive principles. But as a political movement, conservatism really is fundamentally a response to these two secularizations, to the falling away from belief in God and also belief in the greatness and distinctness and reality and continuity of Western civilization and in the kind of um, underlying values expressed in the great works of the Western tradition that we used to study, and that if you fight against those two secularizations, if you aggressively go after them, which is what William F. Buckley did, and what now actually President Trump is doing, then that becomes the decisive consideration for conservatives on the ground and for conservatism as a political movement. And that, I think, helps explain why the never-Trumpers are, are being marginalized, because they don't have a—I mean, to their credit, they do believe in conservative principle and in issues of character and all of those wonderful things that we all take very seriously. But I, I think they give short shrift to the sense in which conservatism as a political movement is a response to an aggressive attack on traditional beliefs, both religious and cultural, by the left. You know, I think it was over the course of the 1980s, uh, but by 1995, uh, one, if you, if you use the term high culture or high art, you, you got an eye roll from everyone in the room. It was, it was like we were beyond argument anymore. This was just bad form. This was just, you, you know, you were out of it. You were unaware. You were hidebound. Uh, and, and the same thing with great books uh, as, as well, that this greatness thing. And I, I didn't get what was going on 
back then. I, I didn't I didn't understand. Wait, wait a minute. I mean, I'm a liberal. I was a liberal Democrat in 1995. I, I voted for Bill Clinton. I wouldn't vote for a Republican. But I, I, I couldn't see how that that support couldn't go couldn't square quite nicely with high culture, civilization and, and all the rest. What I didn't know at the time was that this was a process on campus of the second secularization taking place that I, I didn't I didn't see it. And, and this gets us to the the report that you've done for the National Association of Scholars, which I I guess really is about that the second secularization and you zero in on what happened at Stanford in first in 1987 and then a year later in 1988. What was that about? Well, Mark, the report does indeed focus on the second secularization and it comes in, there are three parts of the report, but you could say there are two, two different focuses of the report. The first one is on attempts to deconstruct, quote unquote, the existence of Western civilization. And the uh, whole idea that it was anything real. Exactly. Ever. And, you know, normal people out there listening may not fully grasp or understand just how crazy the academy has gone. What we have now is a dominance of theorists in the academy who don't believe that things exist, don't believe that the nation is a real idea. I'm talking about America or any other uh, country. They believe these are imaginary social constructions. They don't believe that Western civilization is real. So you see, it's an issue of belief. There is, there is a disbelief there in the reality of things outside of ourselves, above ourselves, beyond ourselves, a tradition that goes back thousands of years that helped create us, that we're a part of, that we can advance and bequeath to our progeny, that is now a question of disbelief. Hmm. So it's a kind of secularization. And then in the second part, or the, the second half of the report, I focus on the more obvious political issues. Back in the days of the Stanford dispute in 1987 and 1988 over the teaching of Western civilization, that was one of the first cases where you actually saw a major public argument over what I call expanded charges of racism and bigotry. People forget how shocking it was to have a course that taught Plato and Aristotle and Dante and Augustine and Freud and Marx and Darwin. Marx. Marx, including Him too. Marx. To have a course like that dismissed as racist. And, of course, that had nothing to do with the traditional definition of racist, which is that you believe in the genetic inferiority of some races, that we should all be separate. This was the beginning of a process that we take for granted now but don't think about much, which is that almost anything, almost any policy issue now will be called racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or some sort of big bigotry will be connected to that. And so what I do in the report is to, is to um, dissect both of these seemingly opposed and even contradictory themes in the original Stanford dispute and that I think we see in our culture today. On the one hand, a kind of radical disbelief in the existence of traditions or institutions or nations 
that we can believe in, that we can trust, that we can learn from and pass on. And on the other hand, an incredible moral certainty that has us condemning and attacking as evil a wide variety of things that never would have been considered evil before. What do those things have to do with each other? And basically, I argue that it's precisely because we've lost faith in traditional institutions, in traditional... Uh, I mean, you mean real faith here. You're, yes. not, you're not using that term just casually. It's genuine faith. That's right. I think you have to have a faith that, say, your family will sacrifice on your behalf to make you willing to sacrifice on their behalf. And the same goes for your community, your country, your civilization. In the end, ultimately, people are willing to give their lives potentially for their countries or in defense of their civilization. And they feel that there's something real there uh, that will also sacrifice on their behalf. And so once you lose that faith, and traditional morality is built around the idea of sacrificing because of your faith in something larger than you and beyond you, then what do you have left? Well, we have only a few things left. We have some basic things that as classical liberals we all believe in. And when I say classical liberals, whether people have read John Locke or not, I believe that your average American is taught to believe that all human beings are fundamentally free and equal. So when we hear about something like racism, which is a violation of the whole idea of equality and an insult to classical liberalism, or when we see something like genocide, which is a violation of people's right to life, well, of course, we're all outraged. We all share that outrage. So that's the moral minimum that we're left with. Of course, those things are terrible, but that's all we've got. And when that's all you've got to believe in and to associate you with a group of people, like a crusade on behalf of people who've been uh, treated with uh, racial bigotry or or a crusade on behalf of preventing genocide, then all of a sudden you start to see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't see it everywhere, you're just an isolated, anomic individual who has nothing to believe in and no people to join with. Mm -hmm. What was the Allardyce thesis? Ah, the Allardyce thesis is the sort of specimen of academic deconstructionism that I concentrate on rebutting at the beginning of my report, The Lost History of Western Civilization. Gilbert Allardyce was a historian, and he came out in 1982 uh, with an article that said Western civilization essentially was an invention created in World War I. Before then, according to Allardyce, nobody in America much knew or cared about Western civilization. And at that stage, according to Allardyce, we were American exceptionalists. We were only preoccupied with ourselves. We didn't care about Europe. We didn't feel connected to them. But then when we hit World War I, the powers that be in the United States said, how are we going to get our sons to go over to Europe and fight and die on their behalf? I know. We'll teach them about Western civilization, and they'll sacrifice their lives on behalf of that. So this is a typical prototypical uh, instance of academic deconstructionism. They say, you thought Western civilization was real? Actually, it was just a propaganda ploy 
of World War One. And believe it or not, as crazy as this sounds, and I think if you tell this to your average person on the street, they'll just laugh and say that that's nuts. But the fact of the matter is, A, this was a crucial argument used by academics to defend the elimination of the teaching of Western civilization at Stanford. B, almost all the leading lights of what's called the world history movement that has uh, pushed our schools, K-12 and college, toward the teaching of world history in place of Western Civ, cite the Allardyce thesis uh, as proof. Mm -hmm. And again, this is sort of a prototype of so many other subsequent deconstructions of the West. And it turns out, when you actually look at it, this whole thesis is, in fact, bunk. It's false. In, in the report, what is the evidence you bring to bear against the Allardyce thesis? Essentially, I reconstruct the lost record of the teaching of Western civilization in American colleges and universities from before the American Revolution, from the colonial period right through World War I. This is what Allardyce said didn't exist, but in fact it does exist, and it's extraordinary not only because it disproves this Allardyce thesis, but because when you actually reconstruct this lost history of Western civilization as taught and understood in the United States, you rediscover historians we have completely forgotten, but who shaped the founding generation, who shaped great American thinkers in the uh, and, and European thinkers in the 19th century. It, it's an important part of our heritage that we've lost. So I uncover all this. This is why I call it the lost history of Western civilization. So the, the uh, negative, the critical part of my thesis is to deconstruct the deconstructionists, to debunk the debunkers. But the more positive part of the first half of the project is to rediscover uh, what Western civilization really is, and to see uh, what uh, our ancestors from the founders on actually were taught. And it's, it's great and brilliant mm -hmm. and important stuff that we have all forgotten about. So what, what then did happen specifically at Stanford in 1987? Well, in 1987... Uh, well, first of all, in the 1960s, Stanford, like almost all uh, elite colleges, eliminated all of its requirements. You could basically graduate and select your own curriculum, except for a few very thin distribution requirements. So that included eliminating Western Civ, which was actually the most uh, popular course at Stanford. Uh, and after that happened, there was uh, a counter-reaction it turns out that Stanford sent various students to Britain, and a British reporter interviewed some Stanford students and wrote an article and said that the uh, uh, human history from the Ice Age to the inauguration of John F. Kennedy seems to be rather a blur for these students. <laughs> and this so embarrassed and humiliated the uh, faculty of Stanford that they decided they would have to put back some sort of requirement so they created a new uh, requirement. They called it Western culture instead of Western civilization. It had a great books component. But from the very beginning of the reinstitution of this, a coalition, a kind of rainbow coalition of uh, uh, various minority students and radical leftist non-minority students uh, argued that this course was discriminatory and should not be brought back. Now, mind you, a lot of minority students love the course. This was actually... 
uh, loved by 80% of Stanford students, which included a lot of minority students. But you had the beginnings of this sort of leftist rainbow coalition pushing against it. And when the argument started, many students were outraged because, again, this was their favorite course. And what they loved most was the teaching of the great books. So they wrote uh, op-eds in the uh, Stanford student newspaper, and all of a sudden they were accused of being racist. And uh, this was a shock at the time. No one was used to racism being used in a context like that. And they even said, oh, no, let's, let's have some readings included from other cultures and from minorities and from women. They weren't opposed to that. But it, they were still called racist. And Secretary of Education William Bennett uh, heard about this because there was a story in the New York Times that described the controversy and that mentioned the now infamous chant, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. Which was the chant led by Jesse Jackson in 87, early 87, 500 students, you write, followed him around campus. Yes, actually Jackson later, uh, it's probably Jackson didn't lead the chant. He actually may have tried to tamp it down a little because it would have been politically awkward for him. But yes, it was all, all the chants were happening when he visited them to support the rainbow agenda. And, um... And this is important because at the time, there was a political element to this. On the one hand, these disputes were considered part of a culture war, which at the time was thought of as something different from and separate from politics per se. Yes, Jesse Jackson, who was running a presidential campaign, was involved, but he was thought of as a sort of marginal player. Now we can look back retrospectively and say, hmm, That actually is the beginning of the polarization that we see now, because what essentially has happened now in our culture and in our politics is that all of the issues argued back then, uh, accusations, broad-scale accusations of racism and bigotry, um, ideas like global citizenship, assaults on free speech, all of the things that we argue about now and that help determine which politicians we vote for, they were all going on back then. On campus. On campus. And essentially what's happened is that the campus culture war has become politics writ large in the United States. Right. You know, the so the, the march was in, I think, January 1987. And then this article in the New York Times by Richard Bernstein came out because the following year, around the anniversary of the march, the faculty voted, yeah, let's scrap. We're going to scrap the Western culture course and create something else. Well, yes, Bernstein's article came out about a year after Jackson's march, but maybe three months before the final vote. And that's what galvanized Bennett to get involved. He went to Stanford and he spoke to various opponents of the uh, proposed change. And they started telling him how they were being called racist. And, and this was shocking. And Bennett tried to say, you know, uh, this is very non-scholarly. Here we have a dispute over what should be in the curriculum and you're calling people racist, he and others called it a kind of McCarthyism, a kind of neo-McCarthyism, and said this is not compatible with uh, what we should be doing in higher education. Well, nowadays, practically everything higher education does is to make these expanded accusations of bigotry that go way beyond anything that, quote, racism was thought of back in, in those days. So the thing that was objected to has now become the dominant trend. You know, to just a, a point, you sent me a link to the New York Times article by Richard Bernstein in January 1988, 
in the same issue of I, I looked it up in the Times uh, when, when went back to the paper in the same issue, the Times printed Jesse Jackson's stump speech for the 1988 campaign. They, they were doing they were doing the stump position pieces of each candidate. It just it just it was just quite a coincidence to see Jesse Jackson the same the same day there. But the cat the, the faculty did scrap the course. It did it did go through. And what what did they replace it with? Well, they replaced it with a course called Culture, Ideas and Values. That makes the acronym CIV which was their way of trying to claim, you see, there's a continuity here. But, yes. the, but the course itself was uh, a novelty, very much a multicultural course. And at one point, the syllabus for one of the new versions of this course leaked. And it was filled with radical leftists like Franz Fanon, uh, who believed that you, uh, third world countries could only redeem their sense of identity by some sort of violence. Uh, against the West. And uh, it caused a controversy. And uh, Alan Bloom wrote in to the Wall Street Journal, which exposed the syllabus, saying that this was proof uh, that uh, Stanford didn't take um, America seriously because a Stanford dean had said, we've got to replace uh, John Locke with Franz Fanon. And uh, I think that's essentially what's happened. If you look at, at our politics and culture, we've replaced John Locke with Franz Fanon, at least half the country right. has moved in that direction. Of course, Obama, I have to throw in that Obama w was a big fan of Franz Fanon when he was an undergraduate. Uh, one of the things that you bring out in the report is that we had this new course created, CIV, Culture, Ideas, Values, and that there were different versions of the courses. And that six years later, I think it was six years later, Stanford did a, just a curriculum review and one of the distressing, and, and they admitted this was distressing, results of this curriculum review was how unpopular the Civ course was. Western culture in the 80s, that was popular. This replacement for it, the students did not. I think 72% of them gave it a negative judgment. Exactly. The, repla the multicultural replacement course was a flop. And the reason it was a flop is because it had no coherence. It wasn't about anything other than deconstructing uh, what exists. And people don't get excited by that. It doesn't give them anything to believe in. So uh, there's, no, there's no story. There's no big picture. There's nothing to commit yourself to. It seemed like, well, we see this a lot in diversity course requirements. Oh, you do a little of this. You do a little of that. And it doesn't, it doesn't hang together, which... Maybe the point, or may, maybe it's oh. impossible for them to give you any any tradition, any culture, any inheritance, any heritage. No, but I think you were right when you said that that may be the point, and that's one of the things I actually argue in the report. I go into the work of Mary Louise Pratt, who was actually the uh, teacher who organized the main new version of Civ, and I look at her writings based on this new course. And she actually seems to relish the idea of a future United States where people can't agree on anything, where they have no common language. It's really very frightening hmm. to read what she says. And, so, and didn't she cite indirectly the Allardyce thesis? Oh, yes. As, as, a, as a justification. 
Oh, yes. Uh, one of the things I do in the report, you see, I use this Allardyce thesis. You could almost say it's like an archaeologist takes a core sample from an archaeological dig to see what the different layers, uh, the soil in the different layers show, or they drill down into a glacier. I look at the work, the academic work, of all the scholars who invoked the Allardyce thesis during the original Stanford conflict and since. And I use that as a kind of sample of academic attitudes for in the, over the last 30 years. And so the people who embraced this sort of deconstructionism, what was their broader worldview is what I try to bring out. And yes, Pratt seemed not only to be someone who was merely aspiring to give an alternative cultural view but failing, but rather who seemed to actually want to create a situation in which we had no cultural unity. So multiculturalism was not the enrichment, the deepening, the broadening of cultural traditions. The, the prom, I remember the promise back then was students who pass through our new multicultural curriculum are not going to be given a political indoctrination. That's not what it's about. We are going to give them a more accurate rendition of the past. They will be more knowledgeable, more informed, more learned about past realities than they were before. Well, we know that's not the case, uh, but we also know that if this was such a positive vision that you were offering, why is it that not only did the students not like the course because it just seemed incoherent, but that they had a, Stanford had a hard time getting faculty to volunteer to teach the course as well, and a lot of the hardcore advocates for killing Western culture didn't proceed to try to build CIV, but instead they started turning all their attention to speech codes. In other words, once we got Western culture torn down, we're done. Exactly, Mark. And, uh, and I want to go back to uh, what you said. Yes, these people said it was all about enriching our views of other cultures, adding to our knowledge. But what the report shows in some detail is this is not the case at all. I'll give you one example. You had a, actually an attempt at Stanford, uh, led by the conservative Stanford Review, to reinstitute the Western Civ requirement in 2016. It caused an immense ruckus on campus, and I talk about this in the report. And so in response, the uh, pro-multicultural students put out a series of demands, and one of their demands was that the diversity requirement which now existed at Stanford, should not be able to be fulfilled by a course that was simply about other cultures. The course would have to teach about oppression. Unless it taught about colonization and oppression, they didn't want it to count for diversity. So if you had a course on the accomplishments of Chinese culture, they didn't want that to count. So they talked a good game about wanting to create a deeper knowledge and appreciation of other cultures, but from the beginning, and even more so through time, this has always been about a kind of politics of blame and division. And, and this is why you say multiculturalism is a misnomer. It is really anti-culturalism, anti-any culturalism. Exactly. And in the report, I, I look at 
traditional cultures, if you actually look at what is called multiculturalism today, it's really more, uh, this new term of intersectionality is a little bit better because intersectionality is more honestly built around this idea of oppression, claims of oppression. And if you look at what's going on on campuses today, you'll see that it's hostile not only to Western culture, but to any traditional culture. So, for example, the student groups uh, uh, now have adopted X endings. So, for example, the Latino student groups at campuses, including Sanford, now want to want to call themselves Latinx groups. Latinx, meaning that you transcend the binary, the gender, what they call the gender binary. We don't want to assume that everyone should be a man or a woman. So instead of saying Latina or Latino, we'll say Latinx. Now, that is completely incompatible with traditional Latino culture, which is traditionally Catholic uh, and, uh, and conservative and even emphasizes family unity uh, and sexual complementarity. So when you actually look at the substance of what's being demanded, you'll see that it's a kind of radicalization of Western individualism. It's a kind of hyper-individualism, and for good or for ill, it is a development of the Western tradition. I would tend to say that it's a, it's a distortion and deformation of the Western tradition, but it does come from the Western tradition. So on the one hand, these students say, well, we shouldn't have to read John Locke because that's just the West. But on the other hand, they're coming from a radically individualist position, which if you really want to understand what it's all about and have a real debate on what the underlying issues are, you really ought to read John Locke. So the very students who are refusing the Western canon are the ones who most need to read about it. The report is at nas.org. You can you can download the project. Just go to, go to the go to the National Association of Scholars website. I think there's a there's a research or reports uh, tag that you can go, and it's called the Lost History of, of Western, Western Civilization. Yes, you can download a, a free PDF of the entire report. You can buy a hard copy from Amazon, but you can get a free PDF of the whole report. All right, thank you, Stanley. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.